Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. As the opioid epidemic has grown... More Americans than ever have been affected. Babies are among the most heartbreaking victims of the epidemic. Every 25 minutes, a baby is born in our country suffering from opioid withdrawal caused by the use of opioids during pregnancy. This is known as neonatal abstinence syndrome. In October of 2014, Lily's Place opened its doors in Huntington, West Virginia, as the first neonatal abstinence syndrome, or NAS, center in the United States. Here to share with us more about this problem and what's being done to address it is Rebecca Crowder, the executive director of Lily's Place. So, Rebecca, welcome. Oh, thank you. Okay. So, let's start off by, can you describe for our listeners, Rebecca, the problem of neonatal abstinence syndrome and how bad it is in our country. Well, as everyone has seen, this has been a growing issue in every state. There's not any community not affected by it. Um, And a lot of people are just really starting to learn what is neonatal abstinence syndrome. You know, it has the basic definition of a group of problems that occur in a newborn who is exposed to addictive opiates while they're in the mother's womb. And so, you know, these symptoms that these babies go through depend on the type of drug the mother used, how much of the drug she was taking while she was pregnant, how long she used the drug, and how the body breaks down that drug. Um, So, you know, there's such a large range of symptoms that these babies go through, and every person, every baby is different on how their body metabolizes, you know, these, these drugs. So there is just such a huge range of different issues these children can have. So give us some of those symptoms, could you, Rebecca? Oh, yes. Um, well, when a baby is um, born, they initially do not show symptoms immediately. Um, often it can take up to 72 hours before the symptoms start to show. So um, babies are monitored closely to see what type of symptoms they start to show. Um, some of these symptoms include um, modeling, which is the blotchy skin color, diarrhea, excessive crying, high-pitched crying, um, an excessive suck, fever, hyperactive reflexes, increased muscle tone, irritability, poor feeding, rapid breathing, sleep problems, um, sweating, trembling, just tremors. I think that's the one that people see the most and hear the most about. 
Um, there's also some more severe problems such as seizures, um, vomiting. Um, there's just a, a huge oh. range of different things you can see in these babies. Wow, it sounds that way. So what's a typical scenario, Rebecca? I mean, you don't know that the moms are using a lot of times, I would imagine, or do you? No, you don't always know. Um, here in my community, our hospital has mandatory testing for every woman that gives birth. So a lot of times they are able to, you know, capture that child's um, exposure because of that. But not every community has that. So that is, you know, obviously a big concern we have. Um, often, you know, these babies are identified because of the mother's urine drug screen or a history of the mother's drug use that she admits to, or if she is in a medicated, um, medication-assisted treatment program. So for those that are in active addiction, trying to hide it, sometimes their babies may not even show symptoms before they're released from the hospital. So I, that's one of the reasons I think early detection through the mandatory testing of all women, you know, that's important. I'm glad that my local community does that. Wow. Okay. So for the most part, in your community, what you're seeing is you do know what you're dealing with when the mom comes in to deliver. You know, okay, we're going to have to watch for neonatal uh, abstinence syndrome here, right? Yes. Our local hospitals enforce mandatory drug tests on the women when they come in to give birth, even if they don't have a history. When I gave birth to my daughter, I was tested. Um, It's just something that our local hospitals do. So we are able to see if there is something in the mother's system. And, you know, that doesn't always show. So my ho- our local hospitals do watch closely just to see because we do have such a huge problem with it. Um, and so, you know, like I said, though, there is always that chance that a child can be discharged before they start to show symptoms. Sure. So, but for the most part, you're, you're monitoring that. And for most of them, you know when they, you know, when they uh, give birth that there's a pretty good chance of that. So what happens there from there in terms of how you and Lily's Place address this? Well, um, when, a jo- when a child is born prenatally exposed, they go through about a week of observation to see what symptoms they start to show. Um, and then the care they receive will be based on their symptoms. We begin with therapeutic handling techniques um, just to comfort and care for the child. And if their symptoms become severe enough that they re- require medication, they are began on a process, um, a medication weaning process um, to assist with their withdrawal symptoms. So let's do the timeline on this. Mom goes into the hospital, she delivers, she's out of the hospital in normally, what, 24 hours or so? Correct. And then from there, um, mom and baby come to your facility? How's that work? They don't always. Here's the way it works. We actually, at our local hospital, Cabell Huntington Hospital, they have a unit specifically for babies who are born prenatally exposed. It's called the neonatal therapeutic unit. So when the babies are born and and are identified as suffering from prenatal exposure, they are placed in the NTU at Cabell. From the NTU, they either stay there to complete their treatment or they come to Lily's place. So we both provide the same medical care to these babies. Okay. So they arrive at your front step. Take us from there. Okay. Well, when a baby um, does come to Lily's place, we... uh, we, you know, we, we check them into their room. They have their own rooms here. Every nursery is set up to be exactly that, the atmosphere of a home nursery. Every baby has their own room um, because we believe that that is more conducive for healing because we can control their environment and really you know, make it a comfortable setting. These babies have a lot of sensory issues, 
and cannot handle much stimulus. So by having their own room, we are able to totally base their environment on what they can handle, which I believe is very beneficial. Um, so once the baby is here, the parents or caregivers, whoever that may be, go through an intake process with our on-site social worker. And what our, that social worker does is she works with those parents to address what their needs are and to assist them with anything that they need, whether it be recovery programs, whether it be housing, whether it be jobs. She works very closely with them to assure that they're getting the support they need while we are, while we are medically caring for their babies. Okay. And so typically, how long does a baby stay with you? That really depends based on the exposure the baby's had. Um, different medications take longer. Um, different, you know, babies metabolize different. So it's really hard to set a specific time period. We've had babies that are here for two weeks. We've had other babies that have been here for two months. Wow. So it's really based on their exposure and their process of healing. So what about mom? Is mom back at home and she comes to visit on a daily basis or how does that work? Correct. We have the same visitation hours as the hospital, so they have a great deal of access to their child. We encourage them to be here every day. Um, while they are here, we work very closely with them on training them on how to properly care for their child. Um, we go through things such as just, you know, the basics on how to give a baby a bath. Some of these mothers are first-time mothers, but we also go into the specifics about how to care for your baby who is suffering from NAS because there are very specific things you have to do with these children. They cannot handle like what other babies do. Like your first instinct when you pick up a child is to bounce them. You cannot do the, that with these babies. Why not? Got to, they cannot handle it. it be, they become overstimulated. You have got to use the therapeutic, slow, comforting, um, very gentle movements with them because that's what they can tolerate. So we have to train the parents and caregivers on how to do that. Wow. Okay. So to do this, what kind of staff does it require? Well, we have, um, we have a very good staff to patient ratio because we feel it is very important to be able to meet the needs of the child quickly and as needed. So we employ 24-hour um, round-the-clock staff of nurses and patient care assistants, and we keep our ratio to where we have one staff person per two babies. That way we are always able to get to them quickly. Um, so they are trained, we have our own training program that they go through on how to care for these babies that is very stringent. You know, we want to make sure not only are they trained properly, but they also get to shadow another staff member who's been doing it for a while for an extended period of time to make sure they are comfortable with caring for these children. Um, and we also have doctors who round here just like they do at the hospital. They come here and see the babies. So let's talk about some of the success stories that you've had. Well, you know, to me, I, I, I think every baby is a success story. When you see a baby going through a rough time with withdrawal, and then you see them go through this healing process to where they're ready to be discharged, and they're smiling, and they're sleeping well, and they're eating, that's a success. Um, so they're all success stories in my eyes in that way. So how many patients do you see per year? Well, right now, you know, it's hard to base it on a set number per year. Um, our facility can currently care for up to 12 babies at a time. And, you know, sometimes we may be full, sometimes we may only be half full. It just fluctuates based on the need in that month or in that week. Um, we've been open three years, and we've cared for over 200 babies. And can you give me a sense for what kind of a budget it takes to run an operation like this? 
Yes, budgeting is always an issue, especially, you know, when you're when you're a nonprofit, you have to learn to budget on a bare bones minimum of what you can get by with. And we are like any other nonprofit in that way. Um, our current budget is $1.2 million, and that is actually lower than it should be. Um, our nurses here, they are wonderful, and they work for way less than they would be paid if they were working at a local hospital. Um, you know, we, we have our same challenges. Right now, we are able to bill for the babies being here, but with that, that only meets about 60% of our budget. The other 40% of our budget is filled with fundraising, grant writing, and individual donations. Wow. Okay. And I assume that there's quite a few grants that you're eligible for that you can apply to, to get? Well, when it comes to foundation grants, we are very much able to apply for that type. But when it comes to state and federal grants, we're very limited because anyone who's familiar with state and federal grants, funding announcements come out, and they are set up for specifically a certain criteria you have to meet to apply. Well, we never seem to fall into that criteria because we're the only one of us. So wow. they don't set up funding announcements specifically that we would be eligible for. So that's definitely a challenge, being, you know, the first of our kind, being able to be recognized as what we are um, creates some challenges. And I'm hoping that that is something that will change because I know personally on the area of our state of West Virginia, they are very supportive of Lily's Place. And I'm hoping that they will evolve to the point where their funding announcements will be more open to include us. So what did it take to start up Lily's Place? including costs and everything. And, and walk us through, Rebecca, if you could, the timeline to make that happen. Well, um, for Lily's Place, it all began because there were two nurses who worked at Cabell Huntington Hospital. who They were actually working in the NICU, and they were seeing more and more babies born prenatally exposed. And they realized that this NICU environment was not appropriate for these babies. They were not doing well because of the sounds and just the, the busy environment that it was. So they started doing research on how to care for babies who are born prenatally exposed. And their names are um, Rhonda Edmonds and Sarah Murray. And so they, as they were researching things, they came up with the ideas of Lily's Place and the NTU at Cabell Huntington Hospital. And they recruited a woman named Mary Brown. And the three of them started working together on how to accomplish these ideas they had. And so they... You know, the two that worked at the hospital really went forward at the hospital, and eventually they did develop the NTU. And then shortly after, the three women worked very hard on Lily's Place, and they um, got the support of Evan Jenkins um, and really just started, like, kind of moving this forward, hitting them at the state level, realizing, making them realize the importance. And to be honest, Lily's Place came into existence because of community support. Our, do our building was donated. It was completely donated. Every room was sponsored by an individual or a group in a community. Um, and to make it possible to serve the babies of West Virginia, you know, the state got behind Lily's Place and allowed us to open as a pilot program, um, which is how we were financially supported in the beginning. So it really, you know, it all came to be because of the work of these three women and the community and the state getting behind us. Wow. <clears throat> so can you give me an idea then of how long it took to get it off the ground and what it cost? Um, to, uh, it, to get it off the ground, I know it was about a three- or four-year process. Um, and um, I always say I was late to the party because I've only been with Lily's Place for about two and a half years. Um, I started out volunteering here when they first opened their doors. 
And so um, when it comes to the specifics on the financial part of getting started, a lot of that was donated. So it's hard to place a number upon it. Yeah, um, sure. Okay. So here's this is something that I found really exciting is, is the fact that Lily's Place has mentoring programs for other communities to help them open their own NAS centers. So tell us about that, Rebecca. Yes. Um, while I've been at Lily's Place, we have been inundated with inquiry, the people wanting to know how we do this, how they can do it. And I found that I was spending the majority of my time just talking to people about their, uh, what they wanted to do and how they wanted to do what we were doing. We were having inquiries come from all over the country. So I decided that we needed to create a replication plan to make it easier for individuals to do what we're doing because there are, there's so much to this from, you know, the basics on how to start a nonprofit to the specifics on our daily operation and the duties of the people we employ. So we created this replication plan that is a guidebook to individuals. It can walk them through exactly how to do things from how to put your board together to how to do the daily operations. And we set it up in different levels to where it's based on your needs, like the basics on how to create the center, um, how to um, develop your staff, um, how to develop your board, um, all the way down to allowing us to review your fundraising plan and your strategic plan. Because we want to make it easy for other individuals to do what we are doing because we know it is so important. So tell us a little bit more about the, uh, the details of each of the three plans and then, most importantly, what the cost is associated with each of those three plans and why somebody would choose one over another. Well, our, our basic starting plan is it's, it's priced right around $1,000. And that is for the individual, I believe, who is just still trying to figure out if this is something they want to take on. And what that does is it gives you a consultation with, whether it be myself or the director of nursing, a staff member here based on the information you are seeking at that time. And then it has what we call an onboarding manual, which is really development of your board of directors and what it's going to require to move forward from the beginning. And it also walks you through the steps of the basics of how to start a nonprofit. I mean, just that itself can be challenging sometimes. And then a lot of people, I recommend you start out with a fundraising plan and an idea of how much you really need to have to move forward. You want to know that you can financially sustain. So when individuals create their fundraising plan, I will do analysis and a review of that and make recommendations to them. So that's our, our basic beginning package. The second one is, you know, it's closer to $5,000, and it's a total get-started pack. It's a replication manual itself, an operations manual, a leadership team manual, um, business plan review and analysis, um, on-phone consultations, and um, monthly follow-ups with us to kind of make sure they're staying on the same track. Okay, so the first one's for contemplation. The second one is for, okay, you've decided. So this is the plan for you because this is you're going to start. Exactly. And then the third plan, it is closer to $10,000, but that is a plan that includes everything we've talked about. But once you're ready to launch and get open, you actually have us there at your site working with you to help you do that, um, which is, you know, hopefully something that would be beneficial to individuals. And to be honest, we hated even having to charge people for such a thing. But we got to the point where all I was doing was fielding this type of calls. And we realized, you know, we had to financially invest into 
putting this replication plan together. This was such a huge plan. It was beyond my abilities. We had to contract it out um, to Epic Mission to help us and worked with us to create this plan. Wow. So um, how long has this been in existence, this three-phase or three-option plan? Uh, we really just um, we developed this within the, within the past year. Okay. And have you had anybody who has gone through yet? Yes. Yes, we have. We have had um, a couple individuals who have purchased our plan. We also have it to where individuals don't have to go straight into the $1,000 plan. They can just, you know, do consultations with us for an hour to kind of introduce themselves. That seems to be what we get the most of is individuals who, who want to just, you know, have those conversations first and really kind of decide. You can also break it down into different pieces like if you want to create your business plan, and you just want us to review it, we can do that. Or if you want to create your fundraising plan and just have us review that, we can. Or if you just want an hour or two phone call with us, we can do that too. Um, we don't want anyone to jump in and just spend their money if they're not going to be able to move forward. Sure. So um, <clears throat> how many communities have launched now uh, a mentored version of Lily's Place? Um, at this time, only one that I know of has actually opened its doors. It is in Dayton, Ohio, and its name is Bridget's Path. Oh, cool. They actually opened, I think, just um, about two weeks ago. Wow. It's very exciting, that's, yes. That's very exciting. Good. So uh, were you there for part of their grand opening? I was not. No? Um, it's very hard to get away from the office. I honestly yeah. cannot wait to go see their facility. It's definitely in my plans. Mm -hmm. um, I think that they're going to do amazing work. Yeah. And how long did it take them to, from start to finish to get this launched? It, it's taken them a while. They were actually already in the process and were working with the former executive director here before I came on board. So I know it has been at least three years for them. Three years in the making. Wow. Okay. That would sound to be, you know, a pretty long time. So hopefully you know, it is a long time, but mm -hmm. I think part of the reason it has taken so long is because, again, Lily's, places like Lily's Place are so new. They're unknown, and there are challenges we face. If you do not have your state standing behind you and supporting you and you do not have you know, certain things in place, it's hard. So we are hoping that what we are doing is paving the way, making it easier for others to do what we're doing. Because, for example, with Bridget's Path, they started on this journey around the time Lily's Place opened. So we weren't yet set in a place to be the mentors we can be now, three years later with what we know. Sure. Rebecca, what advice would you give to other communities to, uh, for considerations, really, for developing a NAS center? If you truly want to make it work, I feel like you really need to get with your state officials. Get them behind you. Get them to support your efforts. Um, you will need their support to succeed, absolutely. So I feel, you know, you really have to build up that network of supporters for people to be able to stand up for you um, and really assist you not only with funding but with legislation and anything that might be needed. Um, that, that to me is one of the most important things. And just be realistic about what you can do. Like you don't have to do everything at once. You can start small and build up. Just be sure to have a really good plan in place and make sure that um, you have the support you need. So give me an example of how your relationship with the state officials there in West Virginia has been so important. Well, for one, that's the only reason we were able to open our doors is because the state of West Virginia chose us as a pilot program that they would financially support. 
So they were the ones who were making it possible for us to be reimbursed and to receive payments for children until we were able to get our managed care contracts in place. So that was very important. And then beyond that, we have a situation where because we are so new, we are not federally Medicaid recognized as an NAS center. So Evan Jenkins worked very hard to create legislation to actually give us guidelines for what an NAS center is because we were the first. So now in West Virginia, we have rules and regulations for an NAS center that is wonderful because that will uphold anyone else that goes and does what we do. We want to make sure they're doing it right. And now there are rules and regulations they have to abide by. And that also created an opening for West Virginia to create an actual licensure for us. So now we will be licensed as an NAS center. We will be recognized as a medical facility, which is what we truly are. And in the beginning, that's not how we were looked at. So that has been very helpful. And because we have not been recognized at the federal level, Medicaid reimbursements are very challenging. Because our state supports us, the West Virginia Medicaid Office submitted a state amendment to federal level of Medicaid to receive reimbursements through a waiver to be able to pay Lily's place. So you have to have that support to be able to financially sustain. Wow. It's very complicated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would say so. So what final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners about the opioid epidemic and the challenges of trying to protect unborn babies from neonatal abstinence syndrome, Rebecca? Proper education is still a challenge. It is important that everyone understands the effects that drugs can have on a baby. Um, I believe, you know, there are medications out there that individuals don't are being prescribed that they don't even realize will have effects, such as Neurontin. I mean, there needs to be more education on how drugs affect a baby before it's born. I think that's just so important. Um, and also identification, like we talked about earlier. In some cases, you know, it's 72 hours before a baby starts to show symptoms of withdrawal. By the time they're often showing symptoms, they're already discharged from the hospital. It's dangerous to send a child home to go through pain of withdrawal by themselves in that environment, coupled with an individual caring for them who is possibly suffering from addiction and has their own compromised coping skills. This is something we really need to look at is how do we make sure these babies are identified? I just feel that it's really important. And then, you know, as a final thought, I'd like to put out there that we all need to be less judgmental. No one knows what has led a person down this path of addiction. We need to provide supports, and as our social worker always says, we have to love them through it. We need to be non-judgmental. We have to let them know someone cares and is here to help them. Our first priority at Lily's Place is the baby, but we believe we need to help the families be successful to ensure that the babies are on that road to a healthy and happy future. So to learn more about your program, what do they do? Um, well, you can go to our website, which is liliesplace.org. Um, you can also call my facility. I am always willing to talk with anyone and give them more information. And that phone number would be 304-523-5459, right? Yes. Okay. Very good. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today and, and sharing the uh, just the great work that you're doing, Rebecca. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate you um, having us on here and giving us the opportunity to share with everyone, you know, what we're doing and how we hope that others can really begin to do what we do. We've been joined today by Rebecca Crowder, who is the executive director of Lily's Place. Lily's Place opened in October of 2015 to address 
the neonatal abstinence syndrome in Huntington, West Virginia, and they're making a big difference in their community, and might I say, nationwide, they're really making a big, huge difference and making their mark. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.